Welcome to season three of the Jesus Said Love podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mills. And I'm your other host, Brett Mills. We are founders, we're creatives, we're entrepreneurs, and we're activists. We're musicians, and we love Jesus. We've learned a lot serving the Jesus Said Love community, and this is the space we'll get to talk about. Ever learning, ever growing, ever loving. So come with us and explore how we can awaken hope and empower change together to create more space for love. Hello, Emily. <laughs> These are always so weird when we have a guest on and they're watching our introduction. I know, I know but that's, that's kind of part of the clever uniqueness of what right. we're doing here is, you know, we don't have this thing scripted. No, we do not have a script in front of us. This is real. I want our listeners to know every podcast we bring to you guys, these are questions from our heart, from our soul, from our gut. These are curious things that we want to know about, and and it could go any direction. Any, any direction. Any direction that our because expert you come wants to take it. You come prepared. I and do I, come prepared. I come prepared, but my preparedness looks very differently than yours. Yes, you're more fly by the seat of your pants kind of guy. I'm gonna I'm gonna hop on what someone says and hope yes. to go with it. Whereas you have done, and some I have to bring us back a little bit. Y- I'm the rabbit. Yes, it's okay. It's but it's it what makes it work. That's right. Well, I'm I'm very excited about today. Me too. Um, in our episode, and it's February the first. It is the beginning of Black History Month. That's right. And um, I think uh, that Black History Month should actually be every month, if I'm honest. <laughs> it's American history, turns out. Um, I don't know why we have to categorize things, but apparently we do in order to to bring some kind of breakthrough and change for people to think about things. Well, it gives us an opportunity really to focus in on uh, the cultural moment. And I think that throughout uh, the decades, you know, for so long, the black voice has historically just been so marginalized that the importance of Black History Month was really an effort to change the narrative. I mean, there's a good purpose behind having a Black History Month as we've evolved and we've grown, we've recognized black history as American history. We've recognized that we have, um, we've got to unlearn some of the things, especially as white folk that we were taught that weren't accurate. (laughs) And, uh, even in history that we didn't know, um, or were taught in a misinformed way. And so we're now in 2021 at such a pivotal point in our culture to be, um, talking about the truth of why racial equality matters. And so I'm so excited to bring on our show, Dr. Kerry Berkeley. He is within our own Waco community. Uh, He is both a pastor and a program director at the Advocacy Center um, in the Children's Advocacy Center um, for Crimes Against Women and Children, but he particularly deals with programs concerning children. So we're talking Uh, forensic interviews, case management, counseling. Dr. Berkeley oversees all of those programs and initiatives, but he's also a faith leader and a pastor in our community, a beloved one uh, who's been a pastor 16 years, Greater Ebenezer. So just doing some really, really great work. And um, just, I wanted to have him on because number one, we've sat on panels together. Our our work cross um, crosses over at Jesus Said Love and at the Advocacy Center, and you just have an incredible voice. So thank you for being a guest on our show today. 
Thank you very much for having me, Brett. Emily, it's always good to see you and hear you and just to be a part of something great. Well, I do. I want to start off by just simply letting our our, our audience know that um, you rock the bow tie unlike any other man I have ever met. <laughs> and um, it is a it is a signature. When I when I hear Dr. Kerry Berkeley, I immediately am taken to the bow tie. And tragically, he's not wearing one today. <laughs> I need you all to know I'm disappointed in that. He's not he's wearing disappointed. one. But, but you know what? Just because people are listening, I always have a bow tie around. Oh, and for look you, at that. they don't see it, but I'm going to put a bow tie on for you. Oh, my god! Okay, I'm going to put pictures on the website so I that you can see this. I will do that for you. That is awesome. He is because you putting are, the bow tie I, I, I keep them around. Let me see if I can get my wires uncrossed here. <laughs> and there's a, there's a wonderful story about the bow ties that I, I uh, got into, but I don't want to bore everybody on that, but I love no, them. No, tell us. Tell now, us now, why. I, do, I, need, I need you to know this, too. This is not that little boy clip-on bow no, tie that I used to wear, that my mom used to make me wear at Easter. I mean, he I've is actually never seen this. I, I've never seen... My dad didn't wear bow ties, my brother. I've never seen anyone... Look at that. What is... What put on happened? a bow tie. We've gone to a new level here. Are you filming this, Brett? We're going to have to Bam. put this Look on. Look at that. Did you see that, babe? That's amazing. I can there barely tie a straight tie. <laughs> like riding a bike. Once you do it once, you'll never forget. Y'all, he has wow. this fly bow tie on now and just tied it without any issue. Not even a mirror. You don't I even guess, have a mirror. I no guess, mirror. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Every bow it. has its own has its own character. So for me, it started, I found an old bow tie from high school about a couple, about three years ago and wanted to purchase some more because I liked them. And uh, to my chagrin, they cost quite expensive. <laughs> yeah. So I decided I'd learn to, to sew my own. What? So I started sewing my bows by hand and it took me about an hour to do one. And then my mom uh, bought me a, a used sewing machine. Oh. And I started cranking them out three at a, at a time, four at a time. And then my children that Christmas bought me a brand new sewing machine. And wow. so now I just sew whenever I'm, I get home from work sometimes. It's been one of those days. It's a sew day. So I'm sewing bow ties. Uh, so your bow ties are homemade. Homemade. They're originals. And they are. And in fact, you probably can't see it, but I've got my own label too. Oh, that. I love that. Now, are you, are you, have you ventured into, here I go with my entrepreneurial questions, but have you started thinking about a little Etsy shop? So I've got a coworker who says I need to get one. My children say I need to get one, but I tell them all the time, I'd have to pay one of you to run that for okay. me because I, I have no time. <laughs> right. I, I know a little thing I about love the that. Soul. Yeah, I love the soul, but I don't have time. So I, I do alter my own alterations curtains uh wow. so when i go buy a suit it's they well we want to get your size i said no i got it so i do my own alterations i alter things it's it's it's, it's something that i do just yeah that's a little something i love i had no idea a renaissance man you're a renaissance man so brent i'm gonna make you one okay hey oh, you make it i brent, will wear it i have to trim your ago, beard yeah yeah, make it, yeah that's true <laughs> yeah you know, to you, trim your beard with your beard you're i'm gonna have to make you uh, I'll, see, these are the uh, a small one. You're going to have to have a big bow. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm I've heard it. that all my life. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is, Brett. You're going to have to have it. It's going to have to be big. Brett, I'm going to do it for you, Brett. Well, oh, you just, this is amazing. Tell this me is... your color. I, I will need to know your neck size unless you want me to do one for you that's uh, Velcro. Well, knowing my skills, it might. You know what? I'm going to be up for the challenge. I want you, you to make me one that you would wear. And I think my neck size is like an 18. Okay. I got you covered. Oh my gosh! I can't wait to see this, guys. Stay yeah. tuned. That that yeah. is going to be that's that's got to be something special. Brett is going to have a bow tie on, <laughs> a, bow, oh a big bow tie, <laughs> a big one. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, well, Doctor Berkeley, aside from being just a seamstress, uh, is that correct terminology seamstress. for a male? No. How would you say? <laughs> no. No. What alter. would you say? I I am I am someone who is a novice at this. I don't do this. All the time. I think I'm pretty good at it, but I don't do it. So I would be a tailor. A tailor. Uh, Thank you. Uh, I couldn't yeah, I couldn't I, think of the terminology. I would be a tailor. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Aside from being a tailor, what uh what brought you into the line of work that you're doing now? Tell us a little bit about your your background, how you got to where you are today. Well, it started with uh, graduating from college and like all college students who graduate, you need a job. <laughs> Yeah. So it happens that I was uh, passing through 7th and James Baptist Church uh, on the backside of Baylor's campus, and my cousin is the secretary there. And the pastor at the time, Pastor uh, Dr. Raymond Bailey, and his wife was the executive director of the Advocacy Center, Patricia Bailey. Wow. And I was walking through. They were excited about me graduating, and I said, I need to find a job. And it just so happened that the young lady who was doing education at the time was leaving the advocacy center to go work on her PhD. And that left an opening for an, an educator. So wow. I brushed off my, my resume, got my tie, wasn't bow tying then, and uh, went in to, for an interview and I was, I was hired. So when I graduated from Baylor on Saturday, on August the 16th, my first day at work was August the 18th back in 1997. Wow. Okay. So was your, was your background or your degree in anything having to do with, was it ministry? Was it education? What, what was it? Yeah, good question. So my background is in journalism okay. and in religion. So those okay. are the two that I came out with and I used my journalism skills to write curriculum for mm-hmm. prevention at the time, prevention education for mm-hmm. the advocacy center. And I was able to go into schools across six counties and do my programming. And wow. and then that just opened up the door for me there. Mm-hmm. And then the first program director for the Children's Advocacy Center became available, and I applied for that position. And I'm I'm in that position now as program director for the past uh, this be twenty years. Okay, so first you're the program director, and then you land the pastoral the pastor position at Greater Ebenezer. Did you know you wanted to pursue that as well? I mean that those are really two. Big leadership yes. roles. <laughs> I There is a calling on my life since uh, I was uh, the age of 15 is when I started my preaching ministry. And I've uh, been preaching for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew I was called in the ministry. I knew I was called mm-hmm. in the pastor. But many folks who ever felt a calling in your life recognize that sometimes God uh, places you in places to where your gift will be used. And you have no idea where it's leading you. Mm-hmm until God opens up a door and there you are. Mm. Uh, and that's what happened to me. And my story is I had applied for 10 churches 
to be a pastor and all 10 of them uh, said I was too young, <laughs> not enough experience. And finally, a little church in Waco, family church, love them dearly, great Ebenezer of Waco, Texas, said everyone needs a chance. Mm. And they took a chance on a young preacher straight out of seminary. Mm. And uh, and uh, that's that's how I started pastoring while I was working here at the Advocacy Center. How, how do those two worlds, you know, um, how do they kind of merge? How do you hold those two spaces? I mean, what you're dealing with at the Advocacy Center on a daily basis is some heavy, heavy, it's a heavy load. Um, but many of us know if you are pastoring and counseling, even in a faith setting, uh, leading people, what you're dealing with there can also be equally heavy mm-hmm. and burdensome. Right. Um, how do you how do you merge those two worlds? How do you how do you work within those two heavy loads? So uh, I express to people that I am engaged in what you call co-vocational ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have always been a minister from my youth, and even in a in an area in an agency where. You know, uh, because of grant and funding, you don't really talk about faith issues, or at least Mm -hmm. we're not supposed to. Right. I tell people I'm never not a pastor. I'm always a pastor. I'm always a minister, a child of God. And so the genuineness in that is to make sure that I'm using what I believe God has given me to create a space where people can reach their greatest potential, whether Mm -hmm. it be those I work with or the clients that I'm serving in whatever capacity that it is. Mm. Some kids, are I'm a stranger to them when they come see us. And by the time we finish talking, I'm still a stranger, but they have trusted me enough and my team enough to share any information Mm. that they want to share about whatever happened to them. Mm. So I manage it very carefully. There's a lot of sewing in that, a lot of trips (laughs) to a lot of trips to Joanne's Fabrics. So I'm I putting get the plug. It. I'm putting the plug in for Joanne's Fabrics. Oh, uh, aren't they great? Uh, and all wonderful. the man, all the all the people there, they're so knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like a very minimal. So I have a sewing machine. I just got one during COVID to make some face masks. But I like sewing, but not. I can't do bow ties. I'm into those too. I just made this one last week. So oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're and- great. You, you have to find an out. And for me, with uh, my, my, my membership, their understanding of pastors, some days I'm flat when I come preach or, or I'm teaching and I let them know, hey, this has been a tough day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but much prayer, spending time with my lovely wife, Doyce, and our, our boys who are, are grown men now, but mm-hmm. they still bring me joy and our daughter. Uh, and my son-in-law and two grandchildren. They wait, 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 wait. You're a granddad? I am a granddad. You yes. go. It's yes. amazing. Yes. They are precious, too. I'm pops to them, by the way. Oh, I love it. Wow. So, I love it. Pops Well, I, I, I have to tell you this, Carrie. I watched some of your sermons in preparation for today, and a flat would not be a word that um, <laughs> that rose up in me while I watched <laughs> Uh, maybe you felt flat, but um, this this white guy <laughs> did not experience flat whatsoever. The churches I go to tend to be a little flat, um, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> well, you know, every preaching is good. My uh, a good friend of mine, I like to consider a good friend, Dr. Charlie Dates out of Chicago, calls it. Uh, we've got different kinds of preaching. I'm I'm of the vernacular of chocolate preaching. 
and we have vanilla preaching. We have, <laughs> you know, all kinds of preaching that happens all across our world. So, yeah. Um, you know, I can imagine as you stepped out of, of Baylor or seminary and you're headed into working at the Advocacy Center, there's, there's two things that, are, that stand out just right off the bat. Number one, there's not a lot of males in the line of work who are doing um, advocacy work for childhood abuse. Uh, we don't see even a lot of male counselors or case managers or social workers in this field. It's something that we need more of. Secondly, we don't see a lot of black males. Mm -hmm. We don't see a lot of, of black male leadership in social service agencies. What did that feel like for you to, to be, um, to hold up that space and to represent the black male voice and the black male figure in what has historically been deemed um, right as a, a perpetrator, right, of abuse mm -hmm. or an offender. And here you are, this peacemaker, a nurturing soul, a caretaking. Wow. They probably didn't see a whole lot of that back then. We still yeah. don't. So you're right, Emily, in that when you look at the statistics of our cases, most of the perpetrators on cases are male. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they, they run the gamut across ethnicity. It could be black, white, Hispanic, Asian. It could be all of those. But males predominantly are the ones who perpetrate against children and women or families in general. When I first started working at the Advocacy Center, I was, in fact, the only male on staff. Uh, and it was an interesting workplace uh, because most of the ladies I work with, uh, there was a counselor who's here now. You know uh, Michelle Davis. She was yes. uh, she had come in as a counselor uh, not too long after I was hired, and that's and and then Patsy Patsy Buckner who's mm -hmm. here still. Uh, those are the only two that that were here. And then Barbara Wright, our executive director, came on. That's it from that original bunch that we had uh, at the Advocacy Center, but it, I was the only male. And it was a unique opportunity for me to learn uh, mm. in an area from my, from my uh, coworkers uh, from a different perspective. Because you know, even though we are in society and we see things and hear things, we don't fully understand unless others are helping us understand victimization from a different perspective. Mm. And I needed that as an educator to be able to go out to schools and to share that from a male's perspective, we've got to be extra careful and aware that sometimes the things that men in general may say or do can also inflict emotional harm, if not physical harm to someone else. Don't take that for granted. So that was an important part, particularly with the male groups I led with education. Mm -hmm. uh, but then coming from a minority's perspective, it gives me a unique opportunity uh, to speak clarity in my own community about how we can make a difference as men uh, to not only be the covering for our family or our children that we are responsible for raising, but to let them see what positive role modeling is like and what does that look like for them, not just a rapper on TV or a ball player uh, with a multi-million dollar contract who may not ever have any direct interaction with these kids, uh, but what does that look like from that perspective? So I saw an opportunity for me to make a difference. Yeah. And uh, this is a calling for me. Uh, that's why I've stayed and will stay here as long as they'll have me. Oh, wow. We're, gr we're grateful that you're, that you're engaged and that you're in this and that you're redirecting the narrative um, 
for so many. You're giving a different face to so many children of what care and love and concern looks like. Um, I, and I think one of the things that I've been curious about at the Advocacy Center, particularly during uh, the pandemic, during COVID, can you talk to our audience a little bit just about the vulnerabilities um, surrounding childhood abuse? Um, Can you talk about uh, communities that are most at risk? What makes those communities most at risk? Um, Mm -hmm. What you're seeing in terms of reporting and, and care in your organization? Absolutely. Um, I will tell you that the area they would do with sexual, physical abuse, whether it be trafficking, uh, which can be a combination of those types of abuse or neglect, uh, can be experienced in all communities everywhere. So it doesn't matter about economic status, uh, classism, uh, it doesn't matter about ethnicity, it's everywhere. And what these vulnerabilities raise that we can really uncover uh, is that folks who feel they can do this to people and think they can get away with it. Mm. Uh, so you have a lot of abuse that happens from folks who are in power positions or positions of authority. You have vulnerabilities of children who are, uh, because their parents are so busy trying to make ends meet, no one's really keeping an eye on the kids. Mm. Uh, that's a vulnerability. And I dare say, I love technology. But it renders our children at right. the most vulnerable times in their life because there's so many predators yeah. seeking ways to get at them. I, I described it in one presentation I did to some clergy uh, about uh, how to deal with abuse that comes to, to the, the counseling session or to the pastoral session, I should mm-hmm. say, is that most parents don't realize we give them this technology we have them, but it's like inviting a stranger into your house yeah. because if you don't know what's on the other end of that or who they're talking to, they're right there at the dinner table. They're right there in the bedroom. They're right there in the bathroom. So so these vulnerabilities are everywhere. And so we're seeing more or less kids who, um, and, and, and these these numbers don't suggest that just because they're, they're, they're coming from a single parent home that they're always victims. That that doesn't always happen. Right. Uh, we have some cases where there are two parents in the home, very, very successful parents, uh, and it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those vulnerabilities happen when folks try to take advantage of mm-hmm. uh, children in, in tricky, deviant ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're seeing quite a bit on trafficking cases, mm-hmm. uh, sexually exploitation cases, mm-hmm. uh, child pornography cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, sexual abuse and physical abuse, all of those uh, are on on the table when you talk about abuse of children these days. Mm. Uh, We've seen an increase over this pandemic because kids who are at home are at home oftentimes with their perpetrators. Uh, So school, when school, remember when school was out, it would be last spring uh, when they were doing virtual. It was really tough. Our team knew that we were going to have an increase in cases because now where do kids go? Where's their safe place? And schools for many kids was their safe, safe place. Mm-hmm. But so they're at home with their perpetrator and it happens. And so we did see a spike, a huge spike in cases. How are um, those cases, how are they reported? Who, who are the most common reporters um, in these cases? Of the pandemic cases or the ones where kids go to school? 
Sure. I, I think either one. Okay. Because if they're going to school, obviously a teacher or, or right. a mandated reporter there. But when they're at home and they're with their perpetrator, how do you guys find them? Who's who's reporting on this abuse if they're with the perpetrator? Usually it is uh, either someone walks in and sees it, mm-hmm. a protective parent or, or another kid who tells, okay. or it's someone outside the home that gets mm-hmm. access to the children, usually mm-hmm. grandparents, mm-hmm. uncles, aunties, or mm-hmm. someone at their church mm-hmm. that they're able to just say something is happening to me, and that's how we discover it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty scary place because kids in situations like that did not feel comfortable, do not feel comfortable sharing because their perpetrators convinced them that if they do harm, it's going to come to them. Yeah. Do you guys, um, do you all interview the perpetrators ever? The, uh, as a policy, no. But now let me clarify that because, for instance, if we have a case where there are juvenile perpetrators and in the process that CPS uh, is on the case, discovering they're questioning that this juvenile perpetrator is also a victim. Right, right. Then, which which is, if you follow that victimization, it's not always the case, but many times it is the case that these perpetrators are in fact victims. We will talk to those children, those perpetrators, as victims only, mm. but not as a perpetrator. Mm. If that makes sense. We will it talk totally about yeah. their yeah. victimization only. And what we do is we have to follow a certain protocol with that. We keep other kids away so we may schedule a time for a kid to come in a building where no one else is going to come into the building. You know, I think you, you raise a, a great point there um, that so many you – know, in culture, it's easy for, <clears throat> for us to uh, marginalize the perpetrator and to yeah. get angry and to say really terrible things. How could that person do that? Uh, in my work with sex buyers – Um, I have discovered that every single one of them has a story as to how they got there. Some of it's victimization. Some of it is, you know, lack of a father figure, whatever. But even in in perpetrators, um, you know, there there is probably their own victimization at some point. And I think when you you can understand that and let that in, it it changes the narrative that that guy's a dirtbag. Well, that guy did a dirtbag thing, of course. But is he a dirtbag? Is he really scum of the earth? Mm. Or is it that he was set up because of something that happened in his past for failure? And and that's just the domino effect of these abuses that are just so treacherous on our our society, our people, our children. Brett, you 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 raise a good point because on on Mondays, actually today and on Wednesdays, I do a group uh, parenting session with uh, individuals who are recovering uh, addicts mm-hmm. and I adapted a group that I originally wrote a curriculum for parents where they have it's they're put in a unique situation to where they have two children involved in the case where one of their children is the perpetrator and the other one is the victim whether it come from a blended family that's a hard place uh, it came out as an opportunity for us to write me to write a grant for our agency about eight years ago on how do we meet the needs of these unique set of parents? How do we help them? And I did research and not too much was done for that. So I wrote a curriculum called LIFT, which is Learning Initiatives Following Trauma to address those things, but then had a conversation with our local, one of our local addiction places in town, Senecor, 
about mm-hmm. some some services for them and adapted that to meet the needs of some of their clientele. Not all of them are parents, but inevitably in our men's group like today, many of those men have never told, have never shared that in their past, they themselves have been a victim. That what I call it, those that dark spaces mm-hmm. that they've, ne- they've never shared light or had people to come in because they're vulnerable to their vulnerable places. They don't want anyone to know about those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the connection or the correlation between their victimization and the addiction that they struggle with totally. is astonishing. Yeah. It is. And so part of the path to getting to what I've termed for them, their best self or to getting to their destiny or the place where they believe they could be is that we have to conquer that vulnerable place. Mm -hmm. And that means opening up and sharing with people and saying, hey, I've had this problem. Um, This is what happened to me, which is not always easy for people to do. And especially males. We live live in such a shame-based culture. It's like, you know, if you mess up, we are going to shame you to oblivion. Versus, let's create a space for you to get curious as to why. Why did your behavior express itself in that way? Right. And and man, I I love that hearing mm. what you're doing there. That just sounds fantastic. Yes, sir. Do you find that uh, if if more perpetrators are males, is it still the case that most victims are females or female children? When well, we're talking about kids. You, if you follow the statistics, yeah. Emily, it'll 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 show you that one in every three girls and one in every six boys are victims of child mm-hmm. sexual abuse or, or or sexual assault by the time they're seniors in high school. Uh, but those numbers are only based on statistics of right. reports made. That's right. I, and but but having experience in the field, uh, working with young people, it is my inclination that I believe it's happening. A lot more than obviously the numbers suggest. So yeah. for every one case reported, it's estimated that eight to ten go unreported. But I think it's happening more among young boys mm. than the statistics show. I think because of our our uh, male dominant society that which has been nurtured, which doesn't make it right, that these boys are victims and they're scared to tell anyone about it because right. they're struggling with their sexuality, the what's wrong yeah. with me, what are people going to think of me? And so I think it happens more. I think it's happening quite a bit across the board to all of our children, but specifically for males, it's happening mm-hmm. more. And that's the stat line that's, um, that is undeveloped because we don't mm. have all those cases that are there. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, it's really, it's, it's chilling when you think about, I know that for me as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, I, you know, the average age of actually coming out and saying it is like 50, 47 or 50, mm-hmm. something crazy. Yep. I mean, years yep. and years go by. Um, and I don't think I ever confronted it or could name it until I moved away and right. was at college and mm-hmm. then could kind of go, okay, this didn't happen to my friends you know, knowing this was a part of my story, um, it's really chilling to to think of how many adults are still carrying around secrets yes. of shame yes. and secrets that are holding them back from yes. flourishing. Because if 
we believe and we do and we see this all the time that our pain can actually be transformed into purpose. Right. That our greatest points of pain are actually the areas that God wants to infuse with love and healing and power to share light and goodness into the world. And it just it just grieves me. It's just it's so chilling and it's so heartbreaking to think of how many adults um are there are there programs that you're aware of that that adults can even disclose and get in mm-hmm. in community with others if they do think hey I have a story I might want to tell someone can they call mm-hmm. the advocacy center about that yes they can call for the for the help to get for their own victimization right. uh, because at our agency we there's no time limit on if a person has been a, a survivor and they're adults. Usually we, we refer to them as adults uh, uh, molested as children or that's AMAG groups. Um, mm-hmm. But you can have individuals to get resources no matter how old they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are some folks who still want to use that as, a, as a, a platform to be able to help other victims. And that's, that's possible. They can volunteer at certain places, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, to make sure that they're okay as they're right. in there, because what usually happens when folks get in there with people who have similar victimization, if we're not careful, then the floodgates will open on on our own experience. Right. So uh, there is a possibility, and mm-hmm. you said it right on, Emily. There are folks I cannot tell you how many cases we've had to where a parent brings their kid in, and in mm-hmm. the process discloses for the first time that. Yeah she uh, has has been a victim and didn't tell anyone about it. Yeah. Um, and the LIFT program is one of those things. The first session, most most of the parents will say, you know, I, I didn't think this would ever happen to my kids. Right. But but this happened to me uh, yeah. as well. And so we have to go through that that train of processing those emotions as well. So mm. uh, you're right. There is a connection in many cases, not all cases, but mm-hmm. many cases to where uh, there is seems like this this downward cycle that mm. they feel is happening to them, but there are some other factors involved. That's a reason why, uh, yeah, children are, are perped on. You know, in our line of work, as we look at exploitation and and trafficking and adult survivors of that, we know that upwards, you know, of of ninety percent of women have been sexually abused or violated, and mm-hmm. sexual abuse is something that just it just primes you. It grooms you to see yourself as an object. It grooms Mm -hmm. you as a woman, particularly to feel that you are there uh, for the gratification, uh, sexual gratification of someone else. Um, So it makes stripping, it makes prostitution, it makes um, your vulnerabilities to becoming a trafficking victim. It it just, it exposes you. You're, Mm -hmm. you're primed, you're exposed. Um, What we also have found is that while childhood sexual abuse exacerbates those vulnerabilities, poverty is also equally like Mm -hmm. kerosene. Um, And can you talk to us about why is poverty? I heard one, um, one of my missions pastors, professors in, in college talk about how growing up in poverty is trauma Mm -hmm. that to, to grow up, not knowing if your lights were going to come on, if your water, if your food, that's trauma. But mm-hmm. what is it about poverty that makes the vulnerabilities for abuse so much greater? 
Man, that's a great question. Uh, you know, we could spend half an hour talking about that or more. <laughs> but what I will say is that in the, and poverty is a condition of, uh, you know, finances or resources, if you mm -hmm. want to put it in that capacity. And even if people are in poverty, it still becomes the issue of commodity. Okay. So who do who in poverty wants more than the next person? Mm. And sometimes people look at that across and say, well, if you don't have what I have or if I want more than what you have, then it's OK for me to use you, exploit you mm. in order for me to get a leg up. And so some of the cases we have seen on our end with even trafficking cases or parents who, you know, who, you know, give offer their children uh, mm -hmm. to perpetrators mm -hmm. as a way yeah. to either get drugs or money right. or what have you. Uh, it seems uh, in, in that scenario uh, that they're trying to get a leg up because of the poverty in there. But it, the, the exercises or at least the things that they're doing is illegal. Mm -hmm. uh, so poverty itself is a traumatic experience. Some kids don't know where their meals are coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, they're conditioned in some situations to do certain things uh, for the parent. Mm -hmm. uh, that they feel right. they're helping, either going yeah. to the store and steal or, or, yeah. or what have you. So you get this whole train of things that are happening to kids that we wouldn't see as plausible, but they're seeing in their situation that it is. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a correlation there. Uh, yeah. What we have to do, and I think, uh, I think there are programs of folks who are geared in cities like ours in Waco to say, wait a minute, we've got to address uh, these neighborhood concerns of our children, make sure people are safe, mm -hmm. that they know the resources are there and that they trust us enough yes. to be able to come get those resources or that we're taking those resources to them. Um, and so if you look at the, the cross section of Waco as a whole, uh, that's what Wacoans have always done, at least mm -hmm. trying to do, mm -hmm. uh, is to make sure that people are aware that there's a better way. There's something else we can do to make life a lot better. Yeah. And when you think about the way that you just just put it, I mean, we're talking about some failed systems. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, poverty is is mm -hmm. not a ch I, nobody wakes up and says, I really just want to be poor. Right. Um, I mean, and there's there's all sorts of poverty. There's rural, there's urban, there's generational. Yes. Um, there's poverty that occurs because of, of mental illness. There's poverty that is um, feels overnight overwhelming, getting into a mortgage and then having not being able to pay it. And all of a sudden you're homeless. I mean, there's all sorts of, but, but what we're talking about is overarching these lack of systems and, and right. access to those systems to even like know where do I get the resources that I need? You say they're there. You know, we, we have a lot of women that we serve that are like, I mean, do you know how scary it is to, to mm. walk into somewhere? And do you know what rejection feels like for the 500th time when maybe I didn't have the right form or I didn't fill it out the right way? Like how many times do I have to walk around the circle to try yeah. to get what I need for my kids. And it can feel like that rejection because you're already living in a traumatized state mm -hmm. that every impact and every hit is just like defeating. Yes. You know, well, then you mix in, mix in pandemic, uh, yeah. something oh, none yeah. of us have ever been through. You know, the last one was 1918. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So I, I can't imagine. And you know, you were just giving a list of the different poverties 
I think about the folks who just became more impoverished because mm-hmm. of the pandemic. Because Absolutely. of the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. Like yeah. they've Absolutely. been living fine and then all of a sudden they lose their job. Mm-hmm. And I mean, wow. Yeah. 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 Quite a bit. Uh, and you're right. That rejection is something, Emily Brett. It's, 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 it's a rejection when you're already struggling with trauma and dealing with some things. But when you hear that rejection, it's almost a rejection uh, of, of, your, of your ability to thrive as a human being. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is a rejection that is to the level that to the core of who you are. And it's really tough for a lot of people to mm-hmm. really trust then if you say there are services or resources mm-hmm. out there, are they really going to be for me? It's just going to be a mirage that right. I'm only going to be met with the same kind of stuff that I'm dealing with. And so well, and again, for our, for our women too, um, I know particularly for um, the women in our program who are African-American, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're feeling when they're confronted and the faces that they always see are white social workers. Mm-hmm. Um, they, and they perceive there's a, a block, there's a coldness, there's an automatic bias um, it almost reinforces the message, which is why I think it's so important for ta- for us to talk about the issue today and this mm-hmm. this month and, and continuing. We've we've had right. these conversations on the Jesus Said Love podcast before, but if you care about poverty and you care about failed systems and you care about childhood sexual abuse and you don't want to see kids get trafficked, you can't deny the right. work that has to be done regarding racial equality. Right? right. I mean, that's right. That's right. It has to be addressed. And so can you talk about some of those biases or maybe how how have you have you confronted? Um, mm. How are you promoting and, and getting into this space um, to promote racial equality? Yeah, that's felt in places where we wish we didn't feel them, but it's everywhere. Uh, mm. As of late, it just seems like uh, the social um the social uh, arena has really displayed some of the ugly parts of culture yeah. uh, that we wish weren't there. My my aim has always been to to come alongside people and to reaffirm that there is value mm-hmm. in who we are as individuals. Now, mind you, all of us come from different experiences, and for some people, uh, even having a black face, you don't have all of the experience that other people have had who've gone through some trauma that I, I've, heard, I've heard about, my members talk about, mm. I've never seen or experienced that, but I've had my share. Mm. And so basically it's to encourage us in the value that I believe, I preach and teach, that we uh, all have purpose. Mm. And knowing that purpose and knowing that God who loves us regardless of how people treat us, there's some way in our culture, society, where we can contribute and that we have to keep trying, even in the face of trouble, in the, in the face of rejection, in the face of individuals who don't appreciate or value you. Mm. That doesn't mean we're not worth mm. uh, worth what Christ has given for us, what the Lord has given for us. So uh, so that's one way on the local, uh, on the on the personal level. Mm-hmm. But then there's still that outward reach that we have to do. We have to uh, organize, uh, initiate in communities that. Uh, since we have value, we need to not be involved in self-destructive behavior mm-hmm. that counteracts the value 
that we believe we have. And so that's that's trying to turn the tide of individuals who've experienced what I call social trauma Mm. in that they're traumatized at the way people have been treating them, sometimes because of their uh, race or ethnicity, then how do we turn that for our good? How do we infuse into our communities, our, our homes, our, mm. our, our neighborhoods that, hey, this is ours, so let's take care of it and look out for each other to do our best for each other. Let's, mm. let's invest in our local businesses by folks who are trying to make it. Uh, let's do our best to make sure our children understand that even though we see this, this is not us. Mm. We can do better as a, as a community. Uh, so that's the aspect of it. And I still think churches across the city, uh, uh, both uh, the chocolate, vanilla and the uh, mm-hmm. Hispanic version as well. We all Asian as well. We need to come together on that principle of faith mm-hmm. and to recognize that our humanity depends on each other. Yes. Um, that's that's one of the things that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about. Uh, uh, one, of his, one of his speeches, but the famous speech, I have a dream speech, when he talked about that there are brothers who were here on the march in Washington in 1963 that are not black, but they share in mm-hmm. our struggle as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, And so just because a person doesn't look like me doesn't mean they don't understand uh, you know, that this is a worthwhile cause. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we work together? And I still think churches across our city can, can, can do more. Uh, we and part of that is just coming together, not just talking about how can we be better people who are not, you know, racist or people right. who are this way. No, I want conversation that is let's look at the needs of people, yeah, and let's just help, right? Because I, I I don't think Jesus I don't think Jesus said well there's a need over there, but because they are not Jew, I'm not going to go over there. I, I don't think the Lord I, I know yeah. He didn't say that, right? <laughs> right. No, he was this bridge. I mean, just yes. this this incredible and yet the tension, you know, obviously leading to his death that his body bore holding that space for mm-hmm. for all while still confronting, you know, calling people whitewashed tombs and turning mm-hmm. over tables where he needed right. to. There right. was this really interesting um bridge that that Christ this model that he holds out for us where we where do we confront injustices so it's interesting to me this just side note when I look at scripture and I look at where Jesus's anger um, where it turned up and where it got fueled was not against individuals it was against systems exactly and when I saw him turning over the tables or calling people whitewashed tombs he wasn't talking about you personally I'm coming against you personally he's saying this system is dead Mm -hmm. There's yeah. not life in here. This is greed. This is power. This has to be turned over in order um, for the kingdom to come. And But where I see his love was reaching to the marginalized, to the outsider, exactly. to the person exactly. who just, you know, that's what was so specific and individual. Or, or the text where he calls them, you brood of vipers. Yeah, yeah it's out. the group. All that. It's it's the yes. So it's the system. Absolutely. Yeah. And so yeah, now what is our part when we see the system? How do we how do we infuse hope into a system that for years has been geared uh, to favor a particular group and not yeah. the whole group? So that's the challenge of every community, but particularly in, in Waco and for our churches yeah. as a whole, I, I see. Well, I think for us as an organization, sorry, Brett, for us as an organization, one of the ways that 
I've been really convicted about um, Dr. Berkeley is, is the turning over of power mm-hmm. is the listen, give the voice, turn over the mic, mm-hmm. turn over the platform as much as you can. I mean, obviously, you know, God has given us a place that Jesus said love to lead in a little sphere of however, however we can bring that along. But I think even just this podcast is an opportunity to say, we need, we need more voices to speak into this space yes. of how we yes. love well. I'm curious, um, Carrie, how, um, what it, how does it hit you when you hear people say, all lives matter? Mm. Yeah. So it's, 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 you know, in, in theory, uh, from their heart, I believe their, their meaning true. I mean, every life, there's no one who devalues anyone. But when you look at the system or when you look at our, our nation as a whole, um, you can see with all the evidences of treatment of minorities, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Hispanic-Americans as of late, uh, our Native Americans, Native for that Americans. matter. Absolutely. That you look at the history of a. I did a. Uh, 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 What's it? Three weeks. Three weeks ago now, a sermon, and I, one of the things I pointed out is that uh, for years America has has a, they've 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 tried to attach God mm. to what their liberty pursuit was when they had the Declaration of Independence mm. from England. Mm. And uh, and that's the only place that you find any reference to God. They talk about creator in, in mm. that language. That's the only place in both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of this country where there's any reference to God. But they made that statement for their time to seek liberty from England. Mm-hmm. But where they failed at, this is for our parents, mm-hmm. is that they attached God, but they didn't practice mm what they said. And so for centuries now, uh, what has, what has evolved is that, uh, we want, it sounds whole, it sounds good, but there's no action, no, no concrete evidence to say where America has been kind to all of its people, that every mm-hmm. person has a right to pursue happiness. Oh, not, that hasn't been not not from some <laughs> some not from not from some of the neighborhoods I've been in. Okay? <laughs> right. And so basically, um, we we got an issue. So when I hear people say that, um, I, I understand that. But again, the pastor in me wants to help reach them, and yeah. uh, maybe I hadn't lived long enough to know that sometimes some people don't want to be reached. <laughs> but but for, for me to say to them, I hear what you're saying, but in the context of this country, all lives have not mattered. That's right. Yes. Uh, uh, and so that's why you have the statements that are being yeah. said. Black yeah. lives matter. Yeah, absolutely. You know, from the minorities are saying everyone counts. Yeah. And that's based on the history. I didn't make it up. You can right. you can go down to the annals of history of the United <laughs> States of America and you can see for yourself that right. there are clear evidences that all lives have not mattered. Right. And just because a person says it doesn't mean it miraculously is taking place because mm. it's not. Mm. I, I have a question for you. Two questions as we kind of wrap our time together. Number one... Oh, we have I'm to ch- wrap? Hold on. I well, got like, I don't know. I've got... got like, <laughs> I mean, okay. we're, at, we're almost at the hour. I know. 
Okay. So my question, you talked a lot about value, that you're passionate Mm -hmm. about people knowing their value. Where did you learn your value? How did you grow up? So my parents are two absolutely wonderful people. My dad pastors a little church in Lot, Texas, okay. uh, the Goodwill Baptist Church. And for, right. that's, for years, he was pastoring in Marlin. And that's where I started preaching uh, with my dad in Marlin. And mm. uh, so I'm the oldest of five children. And wow. they raised us with... Uh, they, they raised us pretty good. My mom is was the disciplinarian of the family. And whenever <laughs> things would happen in the world, we would always have mm-hmm. what's called a family sit-down time. She says, it's time to have a family meeting. And stuff could happen halfway around the globe, but we have to talk about it. Oh, and every time. I love so your mom. I love dad, your mom already. Yes, she's a sweetheart. Uh, she's a sweet, sweetheart. And I value her every day. Survivor uh, of uh, breast cancer. Uh, and so this is this is something to be amazed with. So that's my bringing up. So we were, wow. we grew up in the country, rural, about twenty mm-hmm. miles south of Waco, and was raised. Were in family the meals, sit down meals, important? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I have we this theory. Down. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I just there's something that connects. There's something about these family meetings, these family values, these shared meals that mm-hmm. just. It helps a child know they have a place at the table. Absolutely. Know they are loved. And regardless of personality differences and how crazy your parents can be and crazy kids can be, there's something that unifies and connects families. Absolutely. Absolutely. Values. Okay. So that's my question about your values. So that means a lot. Uh, That makes a lot of sense in my mind. What about how... Do you, every person that works in this space has a different way, and you've told us about sewing um, kind of as an offloading opportunity for you to kind of process, but Mm -hmm. how do you remain in your heart and in your spirit? How do you remain hopeful for Mm -hmm. humanity with all the evil that you see? Yes, and uh, had we had this conversation this past Friday evening, when I was called back to work to work a very difficult case, mm. my response might have been different because that was a really mm. hard case mm. to come back for. What I see is an opportunity for hopeful, hope, hopefulness in our humanity is that I believe that God has a purpose mm. and it's unfolding. Mm. It's unfolding. And the God who loves me enough to entrust me with an awesome privilege to work with children and families, uh, to preach and teach his word. Um, I believe God has something greater and I'm looking forward to it. I'm expecting to see mm. so much more that God is unfolding. And so that that keeps me hopeful, even mm. when I've had bad days. I may have to uh, may have to sow quite a bit to recover, but uh, <laughs> but that that helps me to know that the work that we're engaged in for his glory. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe God is going to use to help somebody. And if I can just help someone, that's my prayer every day before my feet hit the floor. Lord, use me in such a way mm-hmm. that will help someone see their greatest potential in you. Mm-hmm. Even if it's at the grocery store, because I've seen you at the, uh, mm-hmm. at the grocery store a couple of times at <laughs> HEB. And I love HEB, by the way. Um uh, or if it's at the gas station, mm. or if it's a client family that comes into the building, or a student who is interning with me for the semester, I just want to be used by God in mm. that space. And that, to me, 
is being available for hope. Mm. You are the pastor of Greater Ebenezer Baptist Yes, sir. 125 years old? 105 years. 105 years. Yes, okay. sir. I, mean, 105. I didn't mean to give you that extra That's 20. okay. That's okay. That's okay. I hope to be around at 125. What is it, what is it like? You know, because a, a lot of folks start their own church, and so mm-hmm. they kind of have that story in that context. But you have stepped into something that has a significant amount of history. Mm-hmm. What is that experience like? So most of the folks at my church family are old enough to be my great grandparents Mm. and they have seen me grow. In fact, when my dad uh, uh, was pastoring in Marlin, we would come up the great Ebenezer Mm. and he would preach some of the the days for the uh, one of our pastors in our history. And I love history. Pastor G.B. Booker, who Mm. passed uh, years ago, but was pastor of our church for 33 years uh, before he went to be with the Lord. And, and just knowing that at that time when they were opening up the doors, I had deacons uh, who were opening up the door for me as, as a lad, but they didn't recognize or didn't know that one day I was going to be that pastor. So it has been an awesome privilege. I stepped into a church that was trying to build a facility. That building we had was, oh, man, we, we, we thank God that we were able to keep standing. But uh, that was a part of So within three years of my pastorate, we built a uh, yeah. A new church right beside I-35. Mm-hmm. I've got some members who've seen I-35 being built twice. Oh man! Uh, one wow. once one sister, we lost her about two three years ago. Sister Olivia o- Olivia Ross, she was a hundred years old, hundred and one, and she saw the the church uh, built twice. She wow. was a little girl when it first moved to where it was. And then she came into the building where we had it. And then she also saw I-35 being built twice. So uh, so it's been a joy, to, to say the least. These are wonderful people uh, who love the Lord. And they, I'm growing with them. I'm growing yeah. with them. So. That's amazing. Mm. Well, you are such a gift to our community. We are so grateful that you are um, hopeful and that you're remaining hopeful because in these days we need people who are full of hope to engage in the Thank work you. that we're engaged Thank in. So really, really grateful. If you um, don't mind, if you don't, before we go, I know we got to go, but if you don't mind, because it's Black History Month, yeah, uh, I do a snippet of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I've speech heard it. that I want to share. I would just, love it. You've heard it? I, I was at the Hippodrome okay, when you did it. just a little bit. Ah, you were. I remember that just a little bit. I'm going to go down to a portion, if I can remember his voice. Uh, I started doing this when I was age 12 down at Cedar Grove Satin Church. So uh, this is a little bit of Dr. King's speech. He said, this will be the day. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning. My country tis of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. 
Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring. And when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Thank you for that opportunity. Amen. Amen. I, I, I just, am just covered in chills right now. <laughs> I had to close my eyes for that, Dr. Berkeley. When, when he died, he died eight years uh, six years before I was born. And um, when I first heard of him as a young kid, he has always been my inspiration mm. uh, to the challenges that there were just life-threatening and ultimately took his life. When I played football, he died when he was 40. I wore, no, I wore number 40 and he died when he was 39. Mm. Uh, it wasn't until my senior year that I switched to number five, which would have been the next day of his life because mm. he was assassinated on April 4th. Mm. Uh, my youngest son was born on April 4th. Wow. And so it comes full circle for me. Wow. I am so grateful that you shared that. And you truly are walking in those footsteps and carrying that legacy forward. So thank you. Thank, Thank you for you, joining Brett us. Brett and Emily Mills for this opportunity to share. Brett, look for that tie. Uh, I'm, I'll tell you what, I'm going to sew this week. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to no, sew no this week. No pressure on time. I, I, I know and, how and, it and is. And you say your neck size is 18, right? I, that's what I'm, we're going to make it work, brother. We need to measure okay. post COVID. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's <laughs> COVID 19 on it. <laughs> Take a well, new if, I, if I were if I were looking at you, I could probably guess your next size. But you got a you know yeah. you got a lumberjack beard there. Yeah. <laughs> I can't see it. <laughs> Mine is nowhere near yours. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, thank you, Carrie. Thanks, Dr. We'll Berkeley. All right, thank you both. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for joining us. We hope this episode brought some light to your own story and hope for your journey. Make sure to subscribe and leave a comment. For more info on our work, visit JesusSaidLove.com. Until next time. Share the love.